Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. We are continuing this uh, little sermon series on practicing the practices. And the big idea, if you're new, is that Jesus wants followers. Jesus wants apprentices. Jesus wants people who uh, want to follow in his footsteps. And there is a start to this. The start is to put your faith in Jesus and to realize he is the way, the truth, and the life, that I cannot come to the Father but through him. Uh, the start is repentance and faith. Jesus, you are my Savior, you are my Master, and I feel like the, the choir and the songs this morning did such a beautiful job of articulating those truths of the gospel. But that's where you start. The goal, or kind of the, the finish line, if you will, is to be able to join Jesus on mission it's to be on about what he's on about in the world. You want to, to grow to the point where I can be his ambassador. I can represent him. I can join in his kingdom work. I, I can do this. But there's a path to get from the start to the goal. And the path is, is actually pretty simple. You want to be with Jesus and you want to be like Jesus. You want to spend time with him and you want to, you want to look more like him. And the way that you look more like him really is also very simple. You absorb his truth and you practice his practices. And that's where kind of the, the rubber meets the road and the sermon series really begins is this idea of practicing those practices. And for the next few weeks, probably even a couple months to roughly Thanksgiving, we will begin to lay on you these different practices from the life of Jesus that he tells his followers to implement into their own life that we need to adopt and we need to work out. And we are going to give you basically a menu of practices. And I like the word menu because you can't order everything off the menu when you go to eat somewhere, right? You have to choose. And in the same way, you're not going to be able to order all of the practices off of the menu and implement them into your life and get good at all of them in the next six weeks. That's not going to happen. I would recommend that before you try to spin eight plates at once, that perhaps you get one spinning real good and then try to put another one up. These are all things that we need to grow in, but it all takes time. So I would recommend to you as we move through these, pick one, pick maybe two, three at the most, and say, I would like to work on that. It's not that the others are trivial or unimportant, but this, this one or these two are going to move the needle the most in my life, and so I will hone in on those. I'll put the others on the back burner perhaps, and I'll come back to them later. And like a restaurant menu, menus have categories. So if you were to go to a restaurant, let's say uh, Eaton Park this afternoon, you would find in a stereotypical menu, appetizers normally started, that's the first category. Then there's oftentimes soups and salads. Then there's entrees or maybe steaks. At the end is typically desserts. There are two categories of practices that really serve the menu. And the two categories are disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement or practices of abstinence and practices of engagement. 
And you need to, to know that kind of all of the practices we're looking at will fit into one of those two categories. And like a doctor prescribing uh, the right medication for whatever ails you, you can actually pick the right practice for what's going on in your life spiritually at the moment. So as a rule of thumb, if you're like, how do I know which practice I should choose? As a rule of thumb, if you're struggling with being cold spiritually or apathetic or spiritually numb, or you know you should want to pray or evangelize or be generous, but the want to isn't there, if that's where you're at, then you would probably want to choose a practice of engagement. That will get the spiritual juices flowing. That will get the dead fire burning again. And now on the contrary, if you're struggling with feeling overwhelmed or perhaps run down, too busy, addicted, perhaps lacking self-control, then a practice of abstinence would be in order. So you want to be able to know what's going on in my life and broadly speaking, which category would I lean to? You need both of these, but some of you may need practices of, of engagement more and some of you may need practices of abstinence more. So for example, sometimes a practice of abstinence is in order. We live in a culture that is very fast paced. If you have ever been on a mission trip to, uh, especially not a first world country, maybe a second or third world country, it becomes immediately apparent to you how busy and frenetic our culture is as opposed to many others. And we can go, go, go. We can do, do, do. There's constantly an opportunity. There's all of these even opportunities that, that they're masquerading really. They're distractions and they're not helpful for us, but they're there. And oftentimes you can have this proliferation of things to do, places to go, people to see that you become so busy that you now need to step back and you need to have a practice of abstinence. I see this most often with my own children when we go on vacation. Uh, how many of you ha have children that are young or you once had children that were young and you went on vacation together? Raise your hands. Okay, the vast majority of us. Here's what happens on my family vacations. You tell me if you're the same. Our goal on vacation is to disconnect from the normal rhythms of life, and we want to have fun. We want to make memories. We, we want to invest in them. So what do we do? We get the activities, right, set up for the day. We uh, kind of erase bedtime, and now we get to stay up later and have more fun. We have more sugar on vacation than we normally would. It's not that you can have an ice, ice cream cone at any point in time in the day, but there are more ice cream cones to go around, and there are more things to do. And what I notice at the end of family vacation is that my children on the last day of vacation, you tell me, are your children more content, more grateful, and just well-adjusted little human beings? Or are they like, we just filled your tank as much as we could with experiences and fun, and we said yes to everything, and now you seem more discontent. And now you, you seem to be more on edge and now you are tired and you are cranky and you do not seem well adjusted. Whereas on the contrary, sometimes we'll tell our children, we have four, 
All right, each of you to a room alone by yourself. And we just did this this last week. They got a cardboard box and a roll of tape. That was the toy, a cardboard box and a roll of tape. That's not the normal toy, but that's what they got. They played forever with it. And they came out of their rooms like well-adjusted little humans. Why is that when we can, I don't know, go to Disney World or we can have this fun and we can load it and we can have vacation and all of this fun and we, and we fill our desires and we, it doesn't seem like we're doing that well at the end of it, but yet when we just get away and we stop and it's very simple that sometimes it's a lot better for us. Well, it, the same thing is true for you of your children. If you feed all of your desires all of the time, that will not produce a life that you want to live. That will backfire on you in a heartbeat. So there are times where you need a discipline of abstinence. So we will, as we work through these, give you many examples and try to help you, but anger would be a good example. If If your anger gets the better of you and you have a hair's trigger and you explode and you're, you just, you can't control it, What you're saying is, I'm struggling to control my emotions. I'm lacking in self-control. And if you need to grow in self-control, a discipline of abstinence may be in order. Something like fasting. And you can fast in a lot of different ways. We'll actually talk about this as we move through it. It'll be its own practice that we will discover. But you can fast for a day, or you can fast for multiple days, or you can fast for a meal, or you can do intermittent fasting, or you can not fast for meals. You may fast from social media, or you may fast. Corinthians tells us about a, a married couple that actually fast from sexual activity in order to grow spiritually for a select uh, period of time. Like, there's lots of ways to implement that, but if you will do that, it will help you, because if you can have self-control in one area of your life, it oftentimes will bleed over into other areas of your life. I mentioned to you all a couple weeks ago that in my own life, I, for material and immaterial reasons, I am doing some intermittent fasting from 7 p.m. to noon. And for those 17 hours a day, I don't eat anything. And last week, actually more than a few of you, because I told you two weeks ago, more than a few of you came to me like curious, like you didn't give us an update. You didn't say anything about that. You fell off the wagon, didn't you? And I'm proud to report I didn't. Obviously, my... my Fasting discipline is not paired with a secrecy discipline uh, because I'm telling you about it. But it's been, it's been neat for me to see in my own life that there have been physical material changes, but there have been immaterial changes of uh, less impulsive, a bit more patient, a bit more calm, things that I want to be produced in my life that even doing this over a period of weeks is producing in small doses that are really healthy for me right now. So there's a practice of abstinence. There's also the engagement. So let's say on the contrary, you were anxious or depressed. What the Bible would call your soul is cast down. A great practice of engagement for you may be worship. Private worship, sure, but especially corporate worship. And when you are depressed, you don't want to get out of bed and come to church with a bunch of people. And, and maybe even try to put on a face. And I don't even know if it'd be profitable to put on a face, honestly. But it would be profitable to come because what will happen is you will see the joy of other people, even if it doesn't bubble up in you, 
you will begin for 10, 15 minutes as we go through worship to think about the words and the words aren't about you. The words that we sing are about Jesus. They're about our heavenly father. And you will begin just even for a brief period of time to forget about you and your woes and to stop from the internal look, but to look up and get your eyes on him. And that will produce something really healthy in you. That, that practice of engagement is meant to be for your benefit at times to uh, combat that. Out of curiosity, how many of you have been on a mission trip uh, in the last maybe 24 months? If you've been on a mission trip in the last 24 months, raise of hands, all right, smattering of, of people all across the room. If you had someone close to you raise their hand and you feel spiritually apathetic and spiritually numb right now, I would challenge you to go ask them, when you went on that trip and you engaged and you served and you gave of your time and you gave of your money and you evangelized on the mission trip and you spent yourself, did you come back saying either A, I have given of myself, I have done my due diligence, good till next mission trip, or did you come back saying, I wanna go on another mission trip, why did I go all that way to evangelize when there are people to evangelize here at home? I want to give more to missions this year. I want to, I want to engage. And there was a spiritual fire that was ignited or was growing. And I would, I would, I can't say 100% of the time, but very, very close to 100% of the people that raise their hand. If you ask them, I would bet you they will tell you, it, it lit me up. I became spiritually, I wouldn't say alive because we're spiritually alive when we're saved, but there was an energy spiritually that has been produced in me because I engaged. So understand these two basic categories. There's abstinence and there's engagement. And there are two practices that really are foundational to all of the rest. And these are the two, if you don't have down at least somewhat, I would really encourage you to focus on one of these two if it's not there in a basic way in your life right now. One is a practice of abstinence and one is a practice of engagement. These two are meant to complement each other. These two are meant to be like the world's greatest dance partners. And the practices are solitude and community. These are both things that over the next couple of weeks we'll see are modeled in the life of Jesus and more than recommended for us, something that we are meant to put into practice. And today I want to focus specifically on the idea of solitude, but I want us to understand that these work together. This is what Diedrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Are you familiar with Bonhoeffer and his story? Bonhoeffer, some of you would be. If you want to read a modern biography on his life, you can read Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. I would recommend it to you. It's a fantastic book. But Bonhoeffer was a German citizen who had made his way to the United States. He was a pastor, he was a theologian, and World War II broke out. Hitler came to power, seduced Germany, begins to bully Europe, begins to exterminate the Jews, and Bonhoeffer is faced with the decision, do I go back to my homeland and try to oppose this evil or do I stay here safe and sound in America? Ultimately, he made the decision to go back home and to try to work against Nazism 
basically from the inside out. He eventually was executed for his role in the assassination attempt of Hitler and Valkyrie and, and all that, that's there. But before all of that transpired in his life, Bonhoeffer wrote two books in the late 1930s, both of which are still almost essential reading for those that are in pastoral theology and wanting to understand discipleship. One of his books was The Cost of Discipleship, and the other book is Life Together. Life Together was a book that was meant to be about community and the benefits of community and how you need a spiritual community as Christians. And he has a, a chapter in the book called A Day Together, and there's another chapter in the book called A Day Alone. And it's in that book and in that context that he writes in A Day Alone, let him who cannot be alone beware of community, but let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, wrote, without silence and solitude, we can be active, but shallow. Without fellowship, we can be deep, but stagnant. Christ-likeness requires both sides of the equation. And you know you, okay? If you are more introverted by nature and you would say, my idea of a great day is no people and no emails and no, I don't need friends, I don't need my children, just give me a novel and like a hammock to lay in or my back deck with a cup of coffee and that is the perfect day to me, then you may tend to go into solitude more and you may need community a little more. If you're someone who's like, that's terrible. If we're going on vacation, pedal to the metal, baby. Let's get activities going. Let's be busy redeeming the time for the days are evil, right? Like, let's go. Let's do something. Let's be around people. Then you may need to lean into solitude a little more, and that may not be natural for you, right? So know yourself and know what would be good medicine for you as we move through these. But there has been for a long time over a decade now, a wave of voices, both Christian and non-Christian, that have done their best to point out the potential perils of our modern, digital, always on, always connected, constantly distracted, never bored environment that we find ourselves in today. We, we live in a unique time to be here in 2023 in America. And there's a cultural moment that is, that is different for us than it has been for much of the world, for much of history. I actually like the way that John Mark Comer argues it, a former pastor, and now he runs a Christian nonprofit. But he argues that 2007 will be an inflection point when the history books are written that is similar to 1440. 1440 was the invention of the printing press. And if you take world history, that's going to be a part of the curriculum. That this, the printing press revolutionized Europe and in turn, in turn revolutionized the world. And in 2007, something revolutionary happened. The iPhone was released out into the wild. And we had Wi-Fi at this point in time and things were digital, but it became very different. The app store became a thing. Facebook went from this college thing to anyone who had an email could now sign up for Facebook. The, uh, the dot-com boom that happened in the Silicon Valley and all of these tech companies began to explode. Google, all of these things began to happen to us and information became, it used to be, I don't know, I had to ask my grandma if she knew and if she didn't, nobody knew. 
Then we got Encyclopedia Britannica, and we could go to the library and check it out and read it. I remember that in elementary school. Then if you if you are like borderline millennial, you remember texting cha-cha and getting some information from that. Can I get a witness on that? And then, thank you. And then Google came along, and now we get information whenever we want. It's always there. And now we're constantly connected. Twitter in 2007, this micro blog, boomed and became global, and everything began to change. The waters that we swim in now are vastly different than even 15 years ago that I can remember as a child. I can remember what it was like to go to Kentucky Kingdom, that was Louisville's version of Kennywood, and wait in line for a ride, and you were bored. You know what that was like? It was an hour to ride the Phantom, and what did you do? Nothing. There was nothing to do. You stuck gum on, on, under the rail, or you tried to have a conversation, but there was no phone to pull out. There was no scrolling through the scores of the social media or doing something to keep yourself connected. That wasn't a thing. I can remember flying in junior high and there was no TV in the back of the, of the seat in front of me to give me shows and to give me movies and to have things. There was no Wi-Fi on the plane. There was no one with a Kindle across the aisle to pull it up and read a book. You had two options, bring a physical book or be bored. That was it. That's all you had. And that was like not that long ago. It feels like forever ago, right? Dial up internet where you waited on it was not that long ago. But things have changed and now, oh man, we are always connected. We are always on. What we thought with all this technology would allow us to do as we can do the same amount of work, but we'll be able to do it in half the time. So we will be able to work like four-hour work days. Yeah, right. Joke's on us. Now we can do double the work in eight hours and stay connected after work's done. Even for me, like the, my professors in uh, Bible college and seminary were of a different era and for them it was like, if you needed to get a hold of pastor, maybe the church, maybe he was there, Try his home phone. If he didn't answer, good luck. The end, right? Now, you know how many ways there are to, to connect with me on a personal level, whether it's calling the office or emailing me, or many, most of you probably have my personal phone number to call or to text, or if you can't do any of that, then you can find me on social media and you can send a direct message that way. And I'm not complaining about that. It's just different. It is different that we were always on and we are always distracted and there's something just, there's this hum and this buzz and this frenetic pace of life. And there are pros to this. It can allow, I'm glad I can FaceTime Nana and Grandma with the kids. I'm glad about that. I'm glad that I have information that is available to me very quickly. I'm glad that I can connect with other parts of the world, but there are cons to all of this. If you are not careful and there is not a practice of solitude, then you will be robbed of meditation. You will be robbed of reflection. Like many people don't even stop and ever reflect, what is going on in here? How am I doing? How is my marriage doing? You will be robbed of imagination. 
that even these little vestiges of moments or spaces where we were alone with our thoughts and our imagination or creativity could happen. And for some of us, that was whittled down to like the car ride or the shower or laying in bed at night. But even those now have been so immersed in connectivity that there's, there's a radio going and there's music going and there's a podcast going and there's something happening. And we, we are connected even in those moments constantly. And this can have a, a terrible effect on us. Every sociologist will tell you that our attention span is decreasing as Americans. We are now down to what they say is an eight-second attention span. Those that are younger, it's less. This produces a lack of ability to listen to people, which in turn produces a lack of an ability to be empathetic. Like empathy is certainly tanking. There is a reported self-awkwardness amongst our young people, but they don't know how to carry on a conversation. They don't know how to talk face-to-face. They don't know how to shake a hand and look somebody in the eye and say, pleasure to meet you. Like, they, like there is something happening in us because of all of this connectivity and not all of it's good. Tristan Harris, who is a former product philosopher for Google, and he left the Silicon Valley, started a nonprofit where the nonprofit's goal is to argue for a Hippocratic oath for software engineers. Because Tristan said, I saw behind the curtain and everything is designed to distract you and addict you. Everything is being intentionally geared, all of your social media, even media in general, it is designed to distract you back in and keep you there. That's why it's being made. And we are seeing, I mean, just just read the headlines, pay attention, read any studies. We are seeing the, the travesty of this. All of the data on anxiety and depression and suicide, and substance abuse, and relationships being well, like none of it is encouraging in our society. It's all headed in the wrong direction. Now, I don't, I don't think for one second that a discipline of solitude is the silver bullet that will cure all of that. It's more complicated than that. But I would argue that perhaps There is a time-tested, millennia-old practice of Jesus that we are meant to practice that could combat a lot of this. And that is the discipline of solitude. The discipline of getting away and shutting it down, turning it off for the intention to actually connect with your Lord first and foremost but also even to ask him to examine you and to search you and to try you and to figure out what's going on in here. The psalmist processing his emotions and what's going on inside with with the Lord is something that very few even Christians will will do now. And why? Because we're robbed of solitude. Now, I understand I'm talking to, to Western Pennsylvanians and which... I don't know how long I have to live here to officially get Western PA like citizenship and be a member of the clan, but I feel like I'm approaching it. I think I should be getting close. We're almost a decade in Western PA. So I've lived in Kentucky and I've lived in Arkansas for four years and I've lived in Southern California and I've lived in Northern California. And this place is better than anywhere else I've ever lived. Because you like, you have family camp, right? And your phones don't work there. 
or you, you will get away or go hunting or whatever it is. So, so kudos and two thumbs up on, on that stuff. But most of us still struggle with this massively because oftentimes, even if we do those things, we do it with other people and it's not really solitude of us and the Lord. Oftentimes we'll do those things, but there is no silence involved in it and we don't really shut it down. But if you read the life of Jesus, you get a pattern very quickly that he had a practice of breaking away and getting in solitude so that he could commune with his heavenly father. So in case you think I'm lying or I made that up, let's read the Bible. Matthew chapter number three, how might we establish solitude as a rhythm of life? And we need to, that's my argument. You need solitude as a rhythm of life. You need community as a rhythm of life. You need both of these. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He is baptized by John the Baptist in verse number 16 and verse number 17. Verse number one of the next chapter, Jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness. This is the solitary place. This is the alone place. He was led up to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered, as you might expect. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. I will not read the rest of the story. But the point is to commission the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. How did he start that? An intense season of solitude, 40 days and 40 nights. Like if I came to you this Sunday and said, hey, I'm going to take a break, 40 days and 40 nights of solitude to reflect with the Lord and you won't see me for 40 days, you'd be like, that's not your job, pastor. Like I need to see you before then, right? 40 days and 40 nights. You would find in Luke chapter number six that when Jesus had a big decision to make, he got alone and he got in solitude. Jesus has many disciples and he needs to choose the 12 disciples who would be the apostles. And it came to pass in those days, verse number 12, that Jesus went out into a mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him the disciples of them he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. Facing a huge watershed decision in your life, might I recommend that you get away in the woods for a day with your Bible and you read it and you say, God, give me some wisdom and give me some help. I want your voice on this. I want to know what to do with this situation in my life. Perhaps that would be a good idea. You would find in Mark chapter number one, Mark one is basically the first big day of public ministry for Jesus. And it's a long day. It's a marathon of a day. If you read it, Jesus starts early in the morning and Mark goes out of his way to make it clear that when the sun set and people would be done with work, it was dark and Jesus kept going and the people kept coming and he kept pouring himself out. And it was just one of those 18 hour work days. It was long for him. And this is what it says in Mark 1:35. the day after in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and he departed into a solitary place and there he prayed. Why would he do this? He's so busy. He just had such a long day. Doesn't he need to sleep? He does need to sleep. And you will find Jesus sleeping if you read the Gospels. But it was, it was so busy and so hectic that he needed to recharge the batteries. I was so with people all day long. I just got to get away into a solitary place. My favorite example of this, and I could give you so many, but I'll, I'll leave it here, is in Mark chapter number six. There's such realism in this story and it's so funny in many ways, but, it, but it's so profound and insightful for us. 
Mark 6, verse 30, this is when the apostles have chosen to follow Jesus. They been, have been apprenticing with Jesus for some period of time now. And they are now joining Jesus on mission. And he is sending them out in small doses to beta test kind of their, their abilities and what they've learned and to be able to represent him in the world. And so they go out and they're very busy. Verse number 30, the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Hey, Jesus, the truth that we've been absorbing, we went and taught that. And Jesus, the things that you've been teaching us to do, we went and we did those. Listen to the next verse. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and I love this phrase, they had no leisure so much as to eat. Ever had that day at work? I forgot to eat and I looked down at my watch at three o'clock and realized I hadn't eaten lunch and I didn't have time. Ever had those? Where you are go, 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 meeting after meeting, email after email, got to get this done. There's a deadline, got to go, go, go. And before, it's, I haven't eaten anything today. I wanted to eat today. I was hungry today, but I haven't had the time to eat. This is where they're at. And Jesus knows it. And he says, guys, we got to hit the pause button. Well, I mean, well done, great, fantastic. But come on, let's get away. Let's go to a desert part to place and listen to what happens. They departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people, they saw them departing and many knew him and they ran afoot. So they didn't get in the ship, but they ran afoot thither out of all the cities and outwent them or beat them or got to the desert place first. And they came together unto him. So when Jesus, when he came out of the ship, he saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because there were sheep having a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. How many of you know that feeling? It has been busy and I have been on and I have got to get a break. So you schedule the break and then all of a sudden something interrupts it. Mom calls, the emergency at work pops up, the kid gets sick. This was supposed to be of not just a me day. I know that there's, that's a thing in our culture, but a me and God day. This was supposed to be a solitude day. This was supposed to be a rest day. And here it is in my face again. What realism, Right? Jesus and the disciples face this as well. And what does Jesus do? In this particular moment, he begins to teach them and he has compassion on them and he puts his own needs and his disciples' needs even to the side and begins to invest in them. Verse 35, so now when that day that was supposed to be a private day, a quiet day, a solitary day, was far spent, his disciples came unto him. And I love their like brutal honesty. This is a desert place. Jesus, we're like, we're like in the woods, man. We're supposed to be alone and the time is far past. It, we spent the whole day, so send them away. <laughs> Can you get them out of here? This was designed to be a practice of solitude for us, and it's been anything but. So can you send them away that they may go into their own country roundabout and into the villages and listen, they need to buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. Jesus, we're in the wilderness. There's not even a dollar general around. They gotta go home, right? And if there's not a dollar general around, mark it down, you're in the sticks, okay? Because they're everywhere. Jesus, send them home. And what happens? I'm not gonna read the story. He doesn't send them home. Feeding the 5,000 happens. This miracle, but the miracle is more ministry. 
It's more people that need a touch from God, and he pours himself out. And then listen to verse 45, straightway, the end of the feeding of the 5,000, after this marathon of a day that was supposed to be a day that was solitary, he constrained his disciples, get in the ship. Constrained means like he had to twist their arm. Get away from me. Have moms ever felt that way? Right? You love your children, but there are some days where it's like, can you please get away from me? I would just like a break. Leave me alone. He, he constrains them. Get into the ship. Go to the other side. And then he sent away the people. All the introverts in the room were like, now this is a practice I can get behind, right? Like, can we have the practice of dismissal? Like, come over for dinner or hospitality. It's been a good 30 minutes. Let's get your shoes and your coat on your way. Be gone, you knave. You know, get out of here. He, he sends them away. Get out of here. And what does he do? What does he, well, you know what he does. When he sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. The schedule was so full and all these people needed a touch from God. And he got to this place of, my friends, you got to get. And people, it's been a great day, but you got to get. He could have kept feeding them. He could have done more miracles. You got to get. I, I need some time alone. I need to pray. And my question to you would be, does that resonate with you at all? And I'm willing to bet that with 100% of you, it does. And I know this because you're human. You're, you're meant to have community and you are meant to have solitude. Not loneliness, but solitude. You're meant to have silence sometimes. Like you're made this way. And Jesus knows how life is best lived. I, I would say it this way even, that a practice of solitude not only will it lead to human flourishing, like in your own life, in relationships with other people, but most importantly, in your relationship with the Lord. Now, you can take the solitude, and listen well on this. Inside of that solitude, you could put fasting. You could put prayer. You could put scripture memorization or meditation you could put even listening prayer of God, I just want you to speak to me and, and, and search me and talk. To, there's a lot of things you can put inside of that and you can couple solitude with so many other practices. But there has to be a rhythm of solitude if you want any sort of spiritual depth. There just has to be. Jesus knew it and we should know it too. Now, if you're good at this, then maybe community is gonna ring the bell for you more. But if this is something that you're like, oh my word, I've got to grow in this. My encouragement would be start small. Do not schedule a three-day personal retreat tomorrow if you haven't done any of this in the last three years, okay? <laughs> start small, but start to develop a regular rhythm. We're gonna talk a little bit more about it next week and then swing over to community. But I put some practical helps for you in your outline. There's so many things that you can do, but these may be uh, good for you. Take advantage of the little solitudes that fill your day, okay? This, this could be as simple as I want to connect relationally with my family, so when we're at the dinner table, I'm gonna put my phone off to the side and it won't be at the table with us. That's not true solitude, but it will be helpful. You'll at least disconnect from some things. This could be maybe you have five minutes 
This could be maybe you have a commute to work and instead of listening to talk radio or instead of making a phone call or studying, turning on the podcast, instead of even listening to worship music, you just, you just shut it all down. And you're, and you're by yourself with the Lord even as you drive. Those little advantages that are there, there are probably moments in your day where you can snag them. But you can go beyond that. That's not gonna service you full stop. You need more than that. I would recommend that you maybe create a prayer or a solitude closet or place. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6 when he told us when we pray to go into our closet and he begins to recommend a discipline of secrecy and more to come on that later. But he recommends certainly in that moment that we're praying alone in our closet and some have developed, it doesn't have to be a literal closet, but a prayer closet or a solitude closet of sorts, just that spot that is your spot to get alone. What is your wilderness? Is it family camp? Is it the backside of the graveyard? That was mine for four years in Arkansas, was this graveyard close to our college campus and no one was there and it was very quiet and there were no distractions. And that was, that was my spot, man. I, I love that spot. Maybe it is an actual closet. Maybe it's I just got to go sit in my car in the driveway, wherever it is, find one. Then if you want to really begin to grow, I put for you a part of Richard Foster's rhythm of solitude that he recommends um, in, his, in his book, The Celebration of Disciplines. And I'm not going to read that for you. You can read it on your own time, but know this, much of that is flexible. He recommends 30 minutes. If you don't have 30 minutes, 15 if you don't have 15, eight, it doesn't have to be 30. There's no verse that says 30. But you can, you can adjust the time. You can adjust exactly what he says. If he says day two, get free of technology and, and take a walk. Well, my knee's hurting me. Okay, then sit in your recliner. It doesn't have to be a walk. You can adjust that, but you can read through that. You be, can begin to get a little bit of a practical vision of how you might be able to implement this into your life on a daily basis. But the goal would be this, it's not solitude. If you are not alone and free of distraction, the most of the time the thing that's gonna distract us is technology. Take your Apple Watch off. Leave your phone in the car. It has an off button, turn it off. Like get free of that distraction and just that being alone and being silent and quiet has, has tremendous benefit by itself. But you don't want to leave it there. You want to begin to engage in your relationship with the Lord. Read your Bible for a bit. Pray for a bit. Ask him to speak with you. But begin to put that into practice little by little by little by little. I think what you'll find is that it will have benefits for you, not just not just your relationship with the Lord and you feeling closer to him, although that is... That is paramount. You're never going to feel close to your spouse if you never have alone time with them. But also you're going to find that something begins to happen on the inside. Something calming, something peaceful, like my kids in their room with a cardboard box instead of going pedal to the metal at Disneyland for a day. There's a time and space for Disneyland, but there's a time for simplicity and silence and solitude to commune with our Savior and don't miss out on that. I know for me, I'll be the first to confess, this is my one that I need to do better at. 
I already know the survey. I'm already ahead of you. I'm already looking. This is my one that I really want to up my game on and improve on. And maybe for you it is as well to implement a practice of solitude into your life. I think here would be a fitting way to, to close today. We always close with an invitation and inviting you to pray. Today, though, we're going to pray. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. Scratch that. I'm a little later than I thought. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to stop. And even though you're not alone, you can be alone in your own heart and mind with the Lord right now. And we're even going to make it silent. We're not going to play a piano or any background music. I'm going to give you one minute to stop, and I'll do it with you, and just to talk to the Lord. If you don't have anything to say, then say, God, speak to me.